Kia ora, and welcome to the New Zealand History Podcast channel, where you will find talks on Aotearoa New Zealand history, culture, and society. These talks are organised by Manatu Taonga, the Ministry for Culture and Heritage, with the support of the Alexander Turnbull Library. They are recorded live, either via Zoom or in person at Te Puna Matauranga o Aotearoa, the National Library of New Zealand. Before we get into this talk, just a quick warning that this episode does contain a few swear words. Kwa huihui mai nei, irongi te kaupapa i tēnei wā. Ka nui te koa, ka nui te aroha, te ngākau ki a kite i a koutou. Nō reira, he o kūranga tērā. E ho mā, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. He pau hi tori matua, ata ata rongo, ahau. I'm the senior audiovisual historian, Nautamanatu Taonga, at Ministry for Culture and Heritage, Kua Imogen Kelly, Takawingwa. Kia ora. I'm also the new chair of the Labour History Project. Formerly, yay! We've got some fans and members in the audience, I think. Formerly the Trade Union History Project. Many of the authors of this book have been involved with that volunteer organisation over decades and it supports the telling of histories of working people and unions, and particularly the stories which have been marginalised, silenced and ignored. So on behalf of Tupuna Mātauranga o Aotearoa National Library and Manatū Taonga Ministry for Culture and Heritage, we welcome you here today on this historic occasion to listen to four of the 11 authors speak about this amazing new book, Women Will Rise. I'm not going to take up much more space here today because Sue Kedgley is going to introduce and facilitate the corridor today. But I do want to mention that from an historian's or her historian's perspective, to have the feminists who were involved in developing the Working Women's Charter during the 1970s write about it themselves is so valuable. These lawyers, activists, union workers, mums and aunties, politicians and historians collectively had and still have huge and ambitious goals. Just one such example being item two of the Charter. The elimination of all discrimination on the basis of sex, race, religion, political belief, marital or parental status, sexuality or age. Not a modest aim and one we're still hoping to achieve today, but we would be much further away from that goal if these women had not worked so hard before us. I am personally always encouraged by their tenacity, and I'm always learning more from them every time we speak. Finally, I want to acknowledge the passing of co-editor Gay Simpkin and the huge amount of work she and Marie Russell, sitting in the frontier, put into herding these fabulous cats to complete this publication. We now warmly welcome the panel to talk and sing to us about the frustrations and joys of campaigning for this significant charter which aim to challenge and offer hope for genuine equity for all in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Nga mihi nui ki a koutou. Welcome, Sue. Don't be too polite, girls, don't be too polite. Show a little fight, girls, show a little fight. Don't be fearful of offending in case you get the sack. Just recognise your value and we won't look back. I sew up shirts and trousers in the clothing trade. Since men don't do the job, I can't ask to be to pay. The people at the top sell them off for something more. Unless the people underneath are walking out the door. 
Don't be too polite, girls, don't be too polite. Show a little fight, girls, show a little fight. Don't be fearful of offending in case you get the sack. Just recognise your value and we won't look back. They say a man needs more to leave his children, feed his children and his wife. But what of the needs of a woman who leads a double working life? When the whistle blows for knockoff, it's not her time for fun. She goes home to do the job that's never paid and never done. Don't be too afraid, girls, don't be too afraid. They're clearly underpaid, girls, clearly underpaid. Though equal pay in principle is every woman's right. To turn men into practice, we must show a little fight. We can't afford to pay, you say, the masters and their wrath. But woman says, just cut your coat according to the cloth. If the economy won't stand it, then here's the answer, boys. Cut out the wild extravagance on the new war toys. All among the bull, girls, all among the bull. Keep your hearts full, girls, keep your hearts full. What good is a man as a doormat to follow in a heel? It's not their balls we're after, it's a fair square deal. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi nui, kōsu kejli aho, no mai haere mai, and a very warm welcome to this public history talk about an extraordinarily important historical document, the 1980 Working Women's Charter. And as probably all of you know, the Charter was the brainchild of the former trade unionist, uh, feminist and MP Sonia Davies, and she considered it and looked upon it as her most important life's work. And I'm sure she would be absolutely thrilled that we were gathering here 40 years later to discuss the significance of it. And in fact, it is testimony to its enduring nature that it is as relevant today as it was 40 years ago. Well, the struggle to get the uh, Working Women's Charter adopted by the, Federated, uh, the Federation of Labour and the New Zealand Labour Party is documented in this recently published book entitled Women Will Rise, Recalling the Working Women's Charter, edited by Kat, Kat Gay Simpkin and Marie Russell. And I would like to make a, a special acknowledgement of the incredible effort that Gay and Marie put into this, getting this book published. It was a bit like, as we talked at some stage, herding cats, but we got there in the end. And I think it is a real, you know, Sonia and everyone involved in this uh, would be thrilled with this historical book. So we've got three wonderful speakers today who've um, written chapters in the book, and all of them have been involved in the, get, getting the Charter adopted, and they will all uh, speak about the significance of the Charter. So Hazel Armstrong is going to trace the history of the Charter, Therese O'Connell is going to discuss the extraordinary struggle within the union movement to get the Federation of Labour to adopt it, and Grace Miller is going to give a feminist historian's perspective on the significance of the Charter, its relevance today, and its unfinished business. But first, we'll hear from Hazel Armstrong. Hazel was one of those very early women's liberationists uh, who was a member of the 1971 Auckland University Women's Liberation Group, 
one of the early lawyers in New Zealand, got a law degree from Auckland University, spent several decades working on health and safety issues in the union movement, and then, I think it was in your 50s, she set, went off, set up her own law firm, which has been extraordinarily successful, and it specialises in health, safety and ACC work. And of course, Hazel was actively involved in uh, getting the Charter adopted um, and has written a chapter in the book. So thank you, Hazel. Thanks very much, Sue. That's very nice words. Okay, so I'm just going to give you a short um, kind of background to the, the history of the, the Charter. And I just want to thank the wonderful resources that um, Marie and I found here in the library as we researched it and also in archives. So the first evidence that I could find of an actual working woman's charter was in the 1930s. And so that um, ended up in a conference in 1934. And this was supported by committees, and I just love this, committees in the North Island in Auckland, Ratahee, Whanganui, Huntley and Hamilton. Yeah. So you just think about what were the industries in those um, towns. So uh, the women at this 1934 conference um, created a guide to action, uh, which is set out on page 35 of the book. Um, and in 1936, uh, they, they, the women uh, had a magazine called Women Today, and uh, Marie and I found that magazine here, and it broadcast their aims, and I just love their aims. Peace, freedom, and progress, advancement of women's rights, friendship with women of all nations. I just think they're just fine words that, you know, stand us in good stead today. Um, now, these working women's committees were formed around communist women. Uh, Elsie Farrelly, who um, became Elsie Locke, and is Keith Locke's mum. I'm sure she's got many other claims to fame. Um, and Connie Birchfield and Rita Smith. Uh, and they aimed to link women with working class organisations. And I didn't get this wonderful photograph that I found from Tiara into uh, Marian time, but it's this, a picture of the New Zealand Communist Party in 1948. And there are three women in the Communist Party picture. And it's those women that I'm talking about. So I thought I'd look up and f uh, tell you a little bit about those three women. So um, Rita Smith uh, was a member of the Communist Party for 50 years, and she worked full-time for the party in the Auckland district. Connie Birchfield, who I think more of us know her name, actually, because there's a book written about her. Uh, she was a unionist and originally a Labour woman, but she joined the Communist Party in 1933. And in 1934 was uh, one of the people that organised that first National Women's uh, Conference, and she's in that photograph. And she chaired the first day of that conference. And then El Elsie Farrelly, as I say, Elsie Locke, she joined the Communist Party in the 30s and also worked on, because you remember, she was a writer. She, a lot of us will know her books. And she was the editor of Working Women. And she also helped uh, organize the National Conference of Working Women. And in the book um, that was written about Elsie, um, she hitchhiked 
around New Zealand and set up those local branches that I told you about. Well, then um, the war came along and that seemed to kind of halt charter activism. Um, and then after the war, uh, the second charter movement, is what I'd call it, was rekindled in 1936. And the aims of that 46, and the aims of that are set out on page 40 of the book. Um, and then in 1947, Rita Smith conducted a nationwide tour for the Na Women's National Committee promoting the Charter. So I'd call that, say, like first and second wave of Charter activism. And my analysis is that um, after the war, there was that conservative post-war culture. And if you think of McCarthyism and stuff, I think there was a real turn against um, that kind of activism. And it seemed to go underground. But I think that that's a cause for some research, really. Um, so I think this is my own analysis, that charter, charter activism, not women's activism, charter activism ran out of steam for two decades. Um, there were individual campaigns which have been written about around things like family planning, um, but not charter activism as such. Um, so then, and this is where Sue's introduction comes in, then the third wave, I'd call it, was the 1970s. And there was that upswing um, in feminism and the beginning of a new wave of charter activism. And as Sue did, Credit has to be given to Sonia Davies, who was one of several people influenced by the Australian Working Women's Charter. And I think, uh, Therese, you might be talking about that a bit, are you? Yeah. This led to a women's convention in 1977, where Margaret Wilson presented a charter for debate. Um, and then, and Therese will take up this story, over the next few years, um, the Charter was debated within the union movement, and I'm just going to tell that little story about myself, do you mind? I was at the Wellington Caretakers and Cleaners Union, uh, and that, that union, I started working there in, uh, when did I start there? April, uh, Easter 1976. And um, so a lot of the women from Porirua and the hut caught buses to do the night shift, in, in Wellington, you may remember that. So they were, they were called night cleaners. And um, so they were Pacific Island and Māori women principally, and they worked at night because they had families. And so that there was a kind of a combination of the men working in the motor companies, the women doing night cleaning, and then there'd be a swap over when, you know, she goes off to work. And uh, we had to, our group, the Women's Subcommittee of the Wellington Trades Council, decided we wanted a bottom-up movement which required us to go and talk to the women. Now, this is a terrifying perspective because I was young. I was in my early 20s. I was childless at that point, so I didn't have my lovely daughter by then. And um, I had to talk to these older, often older, Pacific Island women about the charter, which included abortion. And it was terrifying. I just, it was terrifying. But in the end, we got it through. It, it did get there. Um, but it, I do think it was a uh, great campaign, bottom up, um, to, and I think that was a, a good thing that happened. But that, I'll leave that to Therese, because she's got great stories. So um, yeah, so then 30 years after the um, 
1980 adoption of the Charter by the Federation of Labour, a group of us in Auckland and Wellington organised that Working Women Seminar, which was down at St John's Church in Willis. That was in 2010. And uh, we did this lovely little seminar, really, what it was and what to do next, which, Grace, you'll talk about, eh? And, um, and Marie then slogged away ever since then getting this book together. So thank you, Marie. Thank you, Hazel. And our next speaker is Therese O'Connell. And she's another early women's liberationist who was the first president of the Wellington Women's Liberation Front. I think that was 1970. It was 1970, yeah, a few years ago. She went on to work in the Clerical Workers' Union, the Wellington Trades Council. She was active in the campaign uh, for the Working Women's Charter. And, and she's been active, in fact, in the union movement and many, many other social justice movements for the rest of her life. Well, thank you, Sue, and thank you, Emma um, and Kate, for organising this. I think it is great, even though I, even though people think I'm a very bold woman, I've actually been terrified of public speaking from my early days of doing so, but it never stopped me doing it, so isn't that interesting? Um, singing is much more preferable. Um, anyway... And thank you for coming to hear about our history, which has been our work and our passion, really. And the chapter that I wrote is actually very personal. I'm not an academic or a historian. Um, and so when I started to write it, which was just after the deaths of both my parents, and I was reflecting on what had brought me to this point at that time, which was at that stage probably in my early 60s. And I thought, what brought me to be committed to social justice, women's liberation, activism? And I realised, of course, my cultural ancestry, Irish, Scots and Polish, all colonised peoples. My religious, guess what? Yeah. And now recovering, let me say. Um, and my working class background all set me up for being involved, basically, and along with being one of five girls and one boy, we never forget him, our darling, viewing a household that viewed the world through women's eyes, basically. It was a great setup, really. I, I recommend it to people having children, have more women than boys. Well, maybe it's changed now. I shouldn't start saying that sort of shit. Anyway, so for me, always the personal is political. And what happens in the workplace and public life cannot be separated from what happens at home and you. And of course, for many years as us workers within the train union movement and with anything else, you're always told to keep the personal out. You know, that suddenly being at work, you are supposed to be a different person. What bullshit. And thank God now we don't do that so much anymore. Um, and so what has happened beforehand um, even if you weren't aware of it, women's history being so hidden and youth believing you are the first. You know, we really thought we were the first. So I actually first saw the Charter in early 1976 when I visited my sister Bernadette 
Are you still guessing the religion? Um, in Melbourne, and I visited the Working Women's, um, Working Women's Centre there in Melbourne, and it was the same year that Sonia Davies also picked it up from her travels. I think hers were in Israel and in England. So as Hosea told you, the charter was developed from the 1930s, and the mid-70s was the new iteration, basically. And so a new phase of organising women uh, and unions began. And for us, I think probably, well, I take it from my perspective, I started working the Clerical Workers' Union in 1975. I went in as a um, women's liberationist. Um, and I feel that for me, the years 1976 to about 81 were the most intense charter movement. And as I said, I can still feel my heart beating when I say, when I say this. It's really interesting. Writing this chapter was like, I don't think I could say PTSD, but actually I'm sure my blood pressure was raised every time because I'd start getting into it and I'd be thinking, those fucking bastards, I mean, excuse me. And, you know, I'm, I'm like, oh, my God, is this really good for your health, doing all this bloody looking backwards? But anyway, I did it. Anyway, what am I saying? Um, so in that period, I think what we did was we built a women's movement within the trade union movement. And we were many, many, many women doing that. My focus at that time was on what was called the Wellington Clerical Workers' Union, where, of course, our area was Taranaki across to Hawke's Bay, down to uh, Nelson and Marlborough. And, of course, once we started in this movement, we also started to connect to women throughout the whole country. So I was an organiser, an education organiser, campaigner, um, and I was also involved in the Working Women's Alliance. So I'm not going to go into a great detail about the Working Women's Alliance today. Get the book, because I've written a lot more about it in there. Um, and I think that if it wasn't the, the bulk of the work that was done for the Charter was done from a number of organisations. It was Sonia with the Shoppies Union um, and the Working Women's Council, which she set up. And it was the Clerical Workers Union and Working Women's Alliance and then many individual women in other unions who gradually built that up. Um, so I was also, so in the process of writing, I was also clearing up my parents' uh, papers. They weren't hoarders, but they never threw anything out. And if some of you know the parents or had parents who went through the depression, you would understand that. My father, st they still had the beautiful leaflet for the first oven that they bought in 1959. And it was in pristine condition. And when my mother, um, in 2000 and, she died in 2019, she, 2007, realised that she actually needed a new oven, having bought it in 1959, and the guys from the same company came up and I wanted to give them the leaflet because I thought it was extraordinary. Dad didn't want me to give it away. I had to photocopy it. <laughs> he liked the evidence that he had bought it then. Anyway, it's not about that. It's the fact that my, our, my mother, well, our mother, my sister Claire's here today. Your daughter's here. I've got a sister. <laughs> and her name's Claire, so that would give you another indication. Um, but anyway... Mum kept all her darling's letters. What a great researcher she would have been. Um, and it was an amazing and fantastic resource. And I'm really glad that I thought that I needed to educate my parents because I wrote letters telling them about what the right and correct and, and thing should be and what was happening in my life and in the life of the trade union movement. 
My mum had actually been a member of the clerical union. We didn't know that until I was a union organiser and she still had her very pristine card because the union officials would come in after the union, uh, in those days, compulsory unionism was introduced. They'd come up to Taranaki, signed everyone up. Mum signed up willingly. She came from a family who believed in um, such things as unions. And she never saw an official again after that, but she had that, again, very pristine card. So, anyway, and I kept my diaries, nothing salacious in them, which is a pity, just notes on meetings that I had um, been to. And here's one that I found. This is a note that I'm meeting. It shows you the process in building our women's movement. So, in the, the note, I um, discovered I have... What, was, what worried the trade union movement, the men of the trade union movement, were that the women were strategising. Well, we were. And if you read that strategy, again, it's in the book, you'll see how thorough it is. It's a very socialist-communist analysis, I would say. You could, tell, you could tell what we were up about, what we were on about. Um, and then Hazel and Dale Little and I spent months... Um, quiet discussion without anyone else listening in to developing a proposal for a women's committee uh, as a vehicle to better organise women in the trade union movement and advance policies sympathetic for women as well. So um, I was going to tell you, oh my diary, okay that comes up later. So in May 78 at the Federation Labour Conference, the Shoppies, otherwise known as the Wellington Taranaki, Marlborough, etc. Shop Employees Union, um, Actually, it might have been the New Zealand Shoppies Association, whatever. Anyway, the Shoppies put up the charter for the first time. It didn't quite get past the powerful all-male policy committee, but Sonia moved an amendment which passed, and that was that the matters contained in the 15 points of the charter be referred to affiliated unions and district trades council, and they be asked to include them on agendas for seminars. Now, that amendment was a victory of Sonia's patience and cunning, her ability. This was our challenge, and we were determined to win it. And something that showed us that we had a possibility of it was that at that same conference, Sonia was elected to the FOL's national executive as the first woman member in a popular choice. So that was 78, not that long ago for some of us. Um, and it is amazing to think that they were firsts in that time. So in 1979, in my diary, I found a list, in my 1979 diary, <laughs> I found a list of actions dramatically entitled by myself, Issues at Stake, <laughs> Where Forces Lie. It's always good to, I think, head up a list of jobs that you have to do with a determining prospect. So I had one get hold of Hazel Armstrong within the next two days, get list of people at seminar, show her the report. Two, ring up people before the 13th or the 14th of February, chat them up, see if their union has done anything, see if they are interested in another meeting early March. Three, finish off report, send off to the people who went to the seminar, different unions, other trades councils before the 13th or 14th of February. Four, Arrange meeting with Christine Gillespie for Wednesday the 14th of February to have another look at report and formulate recommendations for Trades Council and Women's Subcommittee. Actually, I just looked at that date, the 14th of February. I think most people think of it as Valentine's Day, don't they? Wouldn't have even thought about that. I mean, really, it was an organising to do. 
Send the five, send report to Trades Council in time for March Management Committee. Talk up friendlies, George Goddard, Dave Morgan, John Slater, Sonia Davies, Ken Douglas with a couple of question marks after it. <laughs> Six, photocopy Women's Charter, four for Dale. So obviously at this stage you can see we were absolutely in the throes of the sort of organisation, the process of organisation that most of you in this room have probably been involved with in something or another. You know, it's not, it just doesn't happen by magic, does it? It takes things like, as, as Hazel said, the, the charter for us was a huge thing to take out because we had to, um, the issue of things like abortion was the hottest things. And of course, what we had to get over was the fact that a lot of the male union officials, and none of them were Catholic, um, they were confused by my name and my politics, but at the same time, they believed that the working people would not be interested in those issues. And in fact, they thought it would alienate people. They didn't want anything to alienate people from unions. And our own personal experience was that that wasn't true. It was union officials who were concerned about that, not the members of the union, not the workers, because they lived the life of being a woman, a working woman. Um, they weren't being philosophical about it. So, how long am I going, Maria? Am I overdoing? <laughs> so, the, the book actually has great um, detail and resources for people. Um, I pointed out in my chapter quite a lot of the, um, you know, that those the arguments that were held against it and what we had to do. And we did have to strategise constantly, and we did it. Um, and we sometimes, at the time, we sometimes had envied the trade union movement in Australia because they got their Workingmen's Charter passed as policy almost immediately. But actually, the difficulties that we encountered were really made us stronger and more determined. If we hadn't had that, it wasn't just a case of getting the numbers. And I think that was what we brought to the whole thing. It wasn't a numbers game, a power game. We really believed utterly in um, that the working people must run their organisations, not union officials. And we also, um, we used it, I think, to deep the time to delve deeper into our own unions into the rank and file membership. We plotted, we planned, we strategised, we conducted a very thorough campaign. The level of paranoia among some union officials was high as the results of women organising came to bear fruit. Women were getting more involved. And that's where the singing came in because very often in Wellington we used the choir that we formed in the Trades Council to build our own confidence. Um, at first it was quite weird for many people, I think, because they thought to themselves, oh my God, we don't come from a culture of singing. Well, some of us did. And <laughs> it was, and, and I think everyone grew to love it. Everyone grew to love that sense of solidarity that comes from singing together. Um, anyway, so there's a lot of material in the book. I think it's absolutely fascinating. Um, and, well, I think it's fascinating. <laughs> of course, isn't it strange how, how much your own life you find fascinating? Um, but... I think that whole thing of um, working together built us and certainly, I think, made a, a huge change when I think about it. When you think about how the number of women got involved in unions and women organised and so forth, it wasn't just women. There were many 
other, there were many men who were involved as well. Some, one who's here tonight, today as well, Peter Franks, and there'll be more of who were who really intimately involved in this struggle. So I think it's important not to focus on the individuals all the time, but to recognise that it is many, many women and men who make this happen, that it doesn't happen by these modern days of influences or celebrities, but it happens because determined people, and often in this case, they were socialist women who, who wanted to change the world. And this is a way of doing it. So there were actually difficult times and hard times, and my blood pressure is slowly coming down now, as I know I'm coming to the end. But actually, they were also very golden times because we were very committed and we worked together. And isn't that a lovely thing to do, really? Knowing that you're part of a group of people who are trying to make a difference. So we're going to keep on trying. Thanks for your listening. Thanks so much, Therese. And, um, and of course, when it was, after those years of struggle, when it was finally adopted, first by the Federation of Labour and then by the Labour Party, it was really hailed and seen as a great victory for women and particularly working women right around New Zealand. So Grace Miller is a feminist, a unionist and a historian who's a policy advisor with the Public Service Association, and she's going to look back 40 years later at the significance of the Charter and its relevance today and some of the lessons to learn from it and the unfinished business. Thank you. Kia ora koutou. Um, hearing about the Working Women's Charter and the struggle to get it adopted it's like looking at a bomb crater. You can see the remains of structures that had been, and you can see the destruction, and you can see the new life that has grown since. When asked to reflect about the significance of the Charter today, I can feel the pull of two different narratives. I could look back at the feminist movement and the situation working women were in in 1980 and point out how much better things are now. There have been significant gains in the fights for equal pay and the provision of quality early childhood education. The feminist movement itself has also changed. Sex workers are not mentioned in the Working Women's Charter, but after a long fight, their work was decriminalised. Or I could write about how much we've lost. Any de decrease in the pay gap during the 1990s was a result of men's wages falling, not women's wages growing. Um, the phrase same total wage uh, plus other benefits seems quaint and alien from my working life. The ability of feminists of the 1970s to put together a list of demands, fight for them and win, also belongs to a different time. But I do not want to tell either of those stories. Doing justice to past struggles requires resisting simplistic narratives of either triumph or despair. Um, looking back at the demands, and what I'm going to focus today is kind of talking about some of the successes and otherwise of the demands of the Charter. It's a bit of a bittersweet experience. Um, there's a real uneven level of success, and even where there is success, there is so much work, work further to go. We do have parental leave now. The maximum amount that it is paid at, out, out at is $660 a week. 
Meanwhile, the maximum of ACC is over $2,000 a week. Um, um, but the key question I want to ask is the uneven nature of the success. Some of these demands, we've seen much more success than others. Why, have, why is that? What can we learn about making feminist changes in society from the way some demands seem as urgent as they were in 1980? Some have been sites of state victories and some seem even further away. I think the demand for childcare is the demand that has seen the most progress. To understand how successful it has been, it isn't necessary to understand how terrible things were in 1970. It was almost impossible to purchase childcare in a formal setting at that point. Because of this, the Dunedin Collective for Women set up a childcare centre as a feminist act. Early childhood education is now widely available, and three and four-year-olds get 23 hours per week. There is still much work to be done. The sector is underfunded, and for-profit centres are funded in a way that Kohangareo is not. And obviously, for most people, 20 hours free childcare is not enough. Um, however, there is widespread availability of childcare by qualified teachers that are at least partially government-funded. That's a huge victory. The work of NZEI in fighting for pay equity and training for early childhood education teachers has been invaluable. The Charter's expression of the demand for pay equity, the same total wage plus other benefits, harks back to a very different employment situation. Um, and the fight for pay equity has continued over decades and is far from one. But this past decade, since, the, since, the, since this book started its journey, um, has been one of real victories. Um, the Service and Food Workers Union, now Air 2, and Christine Bartlett took her aged care prevent provider to court the, the aged care provider she was working to talk, uh, won the ability to compare her work to, to work those of men in male-dominated industries. The victory in court and the negotiation that follows has seen an incredible increase um, in pay equity victories um, and has made a real impact to, to, to women's wages. For example, um, the latest set, there's been a series of negotiations and settlements and comparisons. Both a process has been set up and principles. And um, the latest settlement for social workers or people who are doing work that is like social work in private, um, in non-government organisations, the settlement which is in the process of going through at the moment will see people's wages, salaries go from... Tw increased by twenty to $40,000. That's the level of the victory, and it's also the level at which people were underpaid. Um, however, it's been a long journey. The first pay, equal pay victory was in 1960, when women won the right for equal pay um, for the same work in the public service. And there have been many victories, but there's always a danger of seeking back. The, the, the care and support settlement, so this is the settlement for the industry that Christine Bartlett was in, um, was a legislated one, and they've just extended the legislation, which saw, at a time of 7% inflation, the care and supporters workers got a 3% pay increase, and they're back to being $1.20 above the minimum wage and now have to begin a whole new pay equity process. So um, it's very easy for any gains to be lost. Um, again, <laughs> one of the nice things about this, how long it's taken to do this book is that there has to, had to be uh, revision due to um, 
being overtaken by events. Uh, when, we, when, we, when I began writing this afterward, the legal situation about abortion was the same that it had been in 1918. Uh, for decades, feminists had met, written, protested, and tried to change a terrible law and, and seemed to get nowhere. But in fact, that work mattered. Um, and in, on March the 18th, 2020, the Abortion Legislation Act passed its third reading, and five days later, abortion was no longer covered by the Crimes Act. <laughs> the timing revealed how urgent the situation had become. Unnecessary travel for abortion would have caused so much more harm under lockdown conditions that, that came in just a few days later. Um, Again, there is more to be done. Um, at the end of 2020, there were still no abortion services in the South Auckland, and international students are required to buy health insurance. Well, well when there were international students, and who know, hopefully the situation will change when they return, they were required to buy health insurance that did not require access to abortion, um, which left some, um, um, some students in really, really horrible and difficult situations. Again, we can, we can be reminded about how fragile our gains were. Um, earlier this month, a thousand people marched, not very far from here, up to the American embassy to show their solidarity for attacks on abortion rights in America. Um, and uh, if nothing else, while, while the situation is terrible, that mobilisation shows that people are prepared to continue to fight. Um, in some... Um, but alongside these kind of quite significant victories, um, there are areas where uh, things have got worse. Uh, demand nine for equal access to social security. Our social security system is unimaginably worse than it was to in, in 1980, thanks to the 1991 cuts. And those basic provisions about which lead to unequal access to um, social security, like the provision for relationships and the nature of marriage, um, are, are no longer, are still there, despite the best work of the Welfare Advisory um, Committee. Um, the demand for a shorter week um, is something uh, that is as relevant now as it ever was. And in fact, since 1980, the hours of work have got longer. Other demands are more complicated and would not be made in the same way now. A lot of the union's movement about flexible, union movement's fears about flexible work have come true. Work is more flexible than 40 years ago, more flexible for employers. And flexibility for employers means instability, insecurity, and precarity for workers. And again, that right to work for everyone is no more true now than it is before. And, you know, the unemployment rate announced today and the way that that is considered baked into society is still continues. Um, there have been important victories by organised workers in fast food outlets that have led them to receiving more skilled work, but at the same time, new industries have been casualised. The dream of work organised around workers' needs is further away now than it was in 1980. The relative success and continued campaigning around pay equity and childcare shows how important unions are and have been as a site of feminist struggle and winning feminist demands. The Charter was most effective when women were able to organise and make demands in their workplaces. The work done by Charter proponents within the union movement built structures to support further struggles. 
despite massive attacks on union movements in the last 30 years, they're still the most organised and effective way for women um, to, to demand for more. The demands that have been fought by unions in workplaces have seen the greatest advancement for feminist causes. Um, the Charter, its successes and failures, demonstrate that feminist movements exist in a particular historical context. The demands of the Working Women's Charter treated the award system like solid ground to build upon. They had every reason to. The system had been in place for 80 years. Now, an almost entirely individualised and very unstable system of work seems just as natural. Feminist movements and feminist demands cannot exist outside of the time and place in which they're created. Feminism doesn't exist as an, an ideal in the ether. It is created by women who live in the world. In the end, there is no tension between what we've lost and what we've won, because they can't both come out of the complicated history of the last 40 years. Um, what would a charter look like today? And would it be worthwhile? One of the reasons that this book is so important is it makes um, the role of trade unions in the women's liberation movement visible. There are so many working women, amazing working women feminists of all ages. Imagine what we could do if we articulated a set of feminist demands for union and workplaces. A charter for the 2020s would have to start afresh. There is every impetus to do so. The pandemic has made visible much of what feminists have been arguing for years about the necessity for undervalued and unpaid caring labour. The award system is baked into every part of the Working Women's Charter and we need to start from where we are now, not where we were then. But everything that the Charter is still to solve is still a problem. Work that has been done by women is still undervalued. Women still have to do the majority of the unpaid labour. Work is still organised as if that unpaid labour does not exist. And we still do not have the right to full bodily autonomy. The question is, what are the next steps? Um, and there are like two, two very important lessons, I think, to take from this. One is that there is no final victory. There is no stage where you can say, oh, yes, we have achieved that. We have to keep, keep fighting because we will win some things and lose some other things. But the second is, the question of the next steps and what a charter could do now is not a question that any one person can answer usefully. Any good answer would have to be developed collectively. Um, what I think the, the, the story of the charter tells us is that articulating a collective strategy for a better world for working women has benefits beyond those that are immediately put, put foreseeable. And the power of making a demand and going out there and changing um, and trying to change people's minds. And I think that, that um, a, lot of, a lot of those details are tied into particular powerful historical circumstances, but the power of making a demand and trying to change people's minds is not. Well, uh, thank you so much to our three very inspiring uh, speakers. And it shows that the Charter was not only this incredibly important historical document, but it's like a sort of milestone where you can measure where, you know, where, and of course it inspired generations of women, but where we have come today. And, and um, I think, Grace, that was a fabulous 
uh, recounting of you know, the unfinished business that remains before us. So to end, we're now going to invite everyone to join in singing the closing song, Never Turning Back. New Zealand History Podcast from Manatū Taonga. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you're looking for other content about New Zealand history, check out earlier talks in the series. You can find them on your favourite podcast channels. Just search for New Zealand History. Mā te wā.